Welcome back, EBM lovers, to Talk Evidence, where we're going to be looking at the evidence behind the medicine that you practice, how it's made and how it's used. This month, we're going to have a bit of a transparency special. We're looking at how open the data on drugs actually is, and in what way you, our listeners, can lobby to make things better. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Helen and Carl, my co-hosts. They need no introduction. I'm going to make them introduce themselves anyway. Helen, over to you. I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor for the BMJ. Hi, my name's Carl Hennigan. I'm Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, Oxford, and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. And? And? What else do you want? You're a, B- you're a GP too. Oh, and a GP. Oh, yes. Each right. month you forget something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I work in urgent care in out of hours in Oxfordshire. So, as you're listening to this, you might notice that the sound is a little bit different today. Apologies if you can hear any planes or sirens in the background. We've had a little flood in our studio, so it's currently being renovated and we're recording this in a glass box in the middle of the BMJ office. Which is very hot. Very warm in here. You mean we're at the hub of the BMJ? We can see the production of this week's episode right in front of us. We can. Well, right behind me, actually. (laughs) So, as I said, this week we're going to be looking at transparency. But that means it's incumbent upon us to be transparent too. We ask for your feedback, and you can go to bmj.com slash podcast to find out how, and we want to share what you're saying to us too. So before we get into everything, we've got a message from a long-time listener, sometimes guest, but first-time caller, Steve Woloshin, about our segment on black box warnings. Hi, Duncan, Helen, and Carl. This is Stephen Woloshin. I'm a professor at Dartmouth and um, a big fan of the podcast. I just listened to a great episode, the one about Z-drugs, direct-to-consumer advertising, and black box warnings, and I had a couple of comments. First of all, black box warnings um, are, as you say, the most serious warnings issued by FDA. They're about serious or life-threatening harms. Unfortunately, these are typically very rare. So just getting the warning out there, saying something like, oh, you know, this drug can kill you, is probably not right without some sense of the chance of experiencing the harm. And these are often hard to calculate because the worst ones are so rare. And of course, you need some sense of the benefit of the drug, or else how could you possibly decide whether or not it's worth taking the chance of the harm, unless you understand the magnitude and and chance of experiencing the the benefit. Um, The best thing, in my opinion, is to ensure access to good information so doctors and patients quickly get a sense of benefits and harms, not just the serious ones, including the black box warning, um, but also the bothersome ones that may affect your quality of life. Lisa Schwartz and I developed um, something called the Drug Facts Box um, for for precisely this reason. Drug Facts Boxes briefly summarize the drug's benefit and harm data, usually based on information that the FDA reviewed when they decided to approve the drug. For sleep drugs, um, the benefits are generally really small, and the harms, like next-day drowsiness, are often substantial. And this is really clear in the drug box. Um, Finally, you guys also talked about black triangles. 
The best thing about them is that this symbol is meant to draw attention to the fact that a, a product is new to the market, and so the regulator is eager to collect reports of suspected adverse events, even if they're minor. Um, I found some great language from MHRA. Um, they said that when medicines come onto the market, we have relatively limited information about their safety from clinical trials in the UK. These trials generally involve only small numbers of eligible patients who take the medicine for a relatively short period of time. Therefore, patients in clinical trials may not be fully representative of those who will use the med when it's marketed. Only when large numbers of patients have taken a medicine are rare or long-term adverse effects identified. Therefore, effective surveillance after marketing is essential for the identification of rare adverse events and to ensure that appropriate action is taken. Um, in the United States, the National Academy of Medicine called for implementation of the black box triangle years ago, back in 2006, but unfortunately, it's never been implemented. And Lisa and I always thought that this was unfortunate because um, highlighting the fact that a drug is new and that there's important uncertainty about it because it's new and doesn't have a track record yet would really serve doctors and patients' interest. And then finally, um, there was just one minor um, clarification Someone in the podcast said something which suggested that in the United States, drugs which have direct-to-consumer advertisements are available over the counter. They're not. Um, they still require a doctor's prescription. Anyway, thanks for another great episode and um, looking forward to the next one. Bye. So that's some feedback on the episode. Helen, Carl, you've looked at these drug boxes before. Do you think they're useful? Well, look, I think the first thing is it's really difficult with benefits and harms to consider how would you get all the benefits and all the harms, particularly when you look at the common ones and the serious ones. They can go into some number of adverse events. So it's going to be difficult to get that information on the box. But the bit that interested me was the bit where Steve mentioned about Drugs come on the market, which I think is a problem in small number of, numbers of patients. Often the trials are too short to understand some of the adverse effects. And that there's a position where you should report the adverse events and then there should be more onus on us to do that. Well, when you look at the trial evidence, new drugs do generate more yellow card warnings. But it's not clear to me when that should switch off, actually. There's no transition when... The MHRA says we have enough information, therefore we can stop collecting this information. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because I'm not clear, and it's just set some off in my mind of when does the transition period occur? But we do know there comes a point when doctors and clinicians switch off the reporting or they say, well, this drug's been out there now, it doesn't really matter. So there is a problem with the adverse event reporting that we could be more structurally strategic about and do this much more prospectively in an efficient way where we say, look, we're going to do this, we're going to do it for three years, and then we'll report. And if we're still not clear, we should carry on with the reporting. That sounds very sensible. Helen, um, you've looked at these uh, drug boxes um, with Steve before. Were they something that you found kind of useful, or did you have thoughts on the, uh, on the reporting? I think the drug facts boxes are, are very useful. I think, as Carl said, you can't present everything in them because it would be an enormous document <laughs> if you presented every yeah. benefit and every harm. But I think that's why um, it's important to focus in and, and to have um, people involved to to help, I suppose, curate which are the most important uh, benefits and harms to know about. Mm -hmm. um, but increasingly, um, in a world of multimorbidity, the thinking's changing. Because when I go out there, 
the idea that people have one prescription and one box and that's it is a misnomer. Generally, these drugs tend to hunt in packs. So once you've got one disease, you start to accumulate more. And as you get older, they accumulate and then you get more prescriptions. So often I go out to houses and I see people with Dosset boxes or these blister packs. And often I'm looking at the blister, I'm like, I don't, I don't even understand what drugs in the blister pack and how you're supposed to know which one is related to what. And so I, I like the idea, but it's more if you're on a single drug, maybe short term, it makes sense. We just do not have enough evidence and research into taking drugs, understanding them and adherence. And it's a very an area where there's a dearth of information, I'd say. I think that what you were really getting at, Carl, was that our whole system for collecting information, particularly on harms and knowing when you have enough data to be sure on harms and the roles that different people might have in that as researchers or regulators or um, as clinicians or members of the public is a very intriguing topic and one that we might want to come back to um, another time. You can tell that you're a politician because I call it haphazard as opposed to intriguing. (laughs) Intriguing. (laughs) Haphazard. The current system is chaotic, haphazard, and a bit all over the show. And I do think there needs to be some new thinking and new teamwork to create a system that actually is prioritises patient safety over a world where we do see too many drugs come to the market with surrogate outcomes, short-term trials, and they seem to get approved really quickly, and we now have fast-track drug approval, and they're out on the market, and then the MHRA say, well, we're not quite sure if they actually are beneficial or harmful. So we need a systematic approach, and that is not forthcoming at the moment. So I agree. In October, what you're referring to is we're going to a reche to try and set off some new thinking about people to start working together, because this is a huge problem is particularly the licensing and post-market approval of drugs. How do we improve the patient's safety, if you like? Great. Well, we will look forward to hearing more about that in October. Uh, And thanks to Steve for also pointing out that Z-drugs still need prescription, even though they're advertised directly to patients. Um, So if you want to correct us, like Steve, or you have a topic or something else you'd like us to discuss, then let us know. Just record whatever it is on your smartphone. And Interestingly, though, there's something interesting <laughs> to us. Sorry for interrupting. I, it, you made me think, and most people do, there seems to be a lot of drugs now over the counter that used to be prescription, in my mind. Such as? Such as you can get proton pump inhibitors over the, yeah. over the counter. You can get lots of... Uh, opiate-based pain relief over the counter in the UK in the UK you can get all sorts of shampoos and all sorts of antifungals and stuff that used to be on prescription is now readily available over the counter so it'd be interesting to hear where uh, is that different in America because there are many like Nexium which you can just get over the counter so actually it is a problem I think in over the counter so you need to get back to Steve and say do they not have any over the counter drugs then in the US? So Steve if you want to get back in contact or anyone else if you want to interrupt us like Carl (laughs) does then yeah just uh, record whatever it is you want to say on your smartphone and email it in. All the contact details are on bmj.com slash podcasts. Right, so it's time to talk about starting and stopping. Um, 
Carl, you wanted to talk about some evidence that was published on bmj.com on smoking. Uh, a quasi-experimental study was the thing that kicked this all off. And I did an interview with the authors uh, last week. And I, in the back of my head, the whole time I was thinking, what would Carl say about this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that happens to you often, doesn't it? Well, I looked at what Navjoy Loader, the editor who wrote the editorial here, and what will it take to stop the smoking epidemic? And it was interesting. She started that editorial out with referring back to uh, the British smoking study from 1954. And so um, I printed that out and I've got a copy here for Helen because the first thing is everybody should read this paper. Richard Dole and Bradford Hill published in 1954, London, Saturday, June the 26th. And what you can't see is it's very pretty. Yeah, That's what, 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 I'm, what I'm showing in the BMJ is look, <laughs> Because it's a print, it is retro, it is elegant and it looks impressive. So my call for elegant papers, because I would stick that on my wall, not least if I was published with... I'd love an elegant paper and also one that only had two authors at the top. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. If you look at these studies that we've just got here, there's multiple authors all over them. So I, I passed this to one of my colleagues and I said, what's different between these two papers? Well, this is a survey of 40,000 doctors, huge amount of work, and it's got two authors. And then you look today and there are like 25 authors on every paper. And so we either have a lot of friends or somehow we're all adding ourselves in because people used to do studies where there were a few people published. And that made me set off thinking about authorship. Is it growing in number? Well, it certainly is because Nature Index shows us in the last five years the number of papers that have more than a 1,000 authors has gone from zero to 100. And that's a huge amount of authors I think we should paper. just pause it and think. So that is one research paper that has more than 1,000 authors for yeah. that single research paper. Yeah, and that's which is almost improbable to believe, isn't it? Well, um, yes and no, because my ambition is to be on one of these papers, but I suspect <laughs> if you put your name in, you might come up. Well, I mean, what kind of, have you got one? Well, what they are is, they're based at these large-scale projects, so they're not in medicine, but there are some in medicine where there's a few hundred. They tend to be these large-scale projects where they're doing CERN or these massive genetic projects around the world. And what they do is they just stick the whole lab on the paper because they're all working on it. And so you can sort of say that's why it occurs. But interestingly... But they don't meet authorship criteria, presumably. So. Well, they do reach because they've collected the data. Mm. And in collecting the data, and they may have analysed the data, and then they put it in mm. a big vat of genetics or physics data and said there's a thousand of us. It did make me wonder, looking at that, 40,000 doctors, 20,000 research uh, responses to, to that survey, whether Richard Dole and his co-author did actually do it themselves or... Had a lot of friends. Yeah, exactly. A lot of friends that just weren't credited. Well, well, maybe in them days you didn't get the credit. But it's really interesting. Let's go back to that 40,000. It's still interesting. If you look at 1950s, we set off, Richard Dole and Bradford Hill set off a prospective study, which you can actually get the 2004 publication in the BMJ. So... And there are lots of, in the 50s, prospective cohort studies that were set off to answer important questions. Now, if you fast forward to today, you actually, what you get now is a lot of retrospective cohorts. And I have to say the BMJ is, is one of the best journals for publishing these retrospective cohorts, where the amount of biases are, are, are significant and the ability to interpret the associations is difficult. Whereas with this paper, because it's so well done, 
you can tell within three years, there are two points that are really interesting, I think, within this. The first is, have a look at it, the way it's presented. It's beautiful. The first is to say, in 1951, when the study was started, only 12.7% of doctors didn't smoke. So that's a huge amount of people were smoking. And what it shows in this is that actually there's a, a, there was only a small number of deaths in the high smokers of 25 or more grams per day, only 13 deaths, as, a, as opposed to 7.3 expected. But that was significant, even at that point. But what was interesting is there was a very clear dose effect. The more you smoked, the more you were likely to die. And they make a, a great statement about this in the paper, a finding which makes, makes it possible to attach a simple interpretation to the results. So I thought that was uh, fascinating and a paper that everybody should read and we should consider the retro style for printing on your wall. <laughs> so just to bring us back into uh, starting and stopping, what was your message? You haven't said that? anything about the new Yeah, sorry for digressing. I'm getting carried away again. Well, look, the thing is, um, in this paper in the BMJ, they go across 71 countries and they say, look, in most countries over the past three decades, there's been a decrease in smoking. Mm -hmm. But in some countries, like China and Indonesia, and particularly in low-middle-income countries, mm -hmm. smoking has increased. And that actually, the WHO had a framework on tobacco control, and that had no uh, effect on this, despite them saying it's legally binding on 181 countries, whatever that means. But what it shows is there's still a huge problem with smoking. And if you look at the 2004 paper, the effect is stunning and, and we do some teaching of EBM in schools actually where instead of teaching children smoking is good or bad we teach them about the cohort study what was done and show them the effect size and on average if you're a lifelong smoker you'll have 10 years less life you'll die 10 years earlier and that's a huge effect if you think about it and then so based on what you've said are you saying you don't really trust these new papers yeah do well Look, what, what I do say is we've got a problem, is there's huge variation in smoking. Mm. And if you look today, is in the news today, is the national statistics have said in the UK, since 2011, smoking has dropped by around 1.8 million. Hey, hey, everything's solved. But if you dig into the back of this, you notice that in some parts of the country, like Hull, 26% of the population smoking Hull, compared to Rushcliffe, where it's 3.6%. Mm. That's a huge variation. And so we're seeing these variations within countries and across the globe. And what I'm saying is, what we can't be doing is cutting smoking cessation services, given the amount of benefit you get from stopping smoking. It's huge. And we have seen this, where people are stopping cessation service. We need to keep our thumb on the button and keep pressing to reduce smoking because the impact is huge and these papers are helpful to remind us of that. Mm. When I spoke to the authors before, they were saying effectively it's the variation that seems to cancel out the effect. You know, in Europe, we've seen a massive continuing decrease because people have sort of doubled down on our, yeah. our attempts to reduce smoking at a public health level and, and other places. China and Thailand, for example, they, they So part, really of the, part of the thrust when you look at these uh, papers they talk a lot about the need to be able to measure um, the efficacy, I suppose, of public health policy or law, if you want to call it law, particularly this WHO decree that happened in 2003. What they've done is create two papers, one where they've um, essentially created a data set of some 
kind where they want to interrogate the mass of smoked tobacco that's consumed by different countries so to try and create some kind of unit that's comparable across the globe that can track things over decades and in the second paper which they describe as a quasi-experimental design they want to look at whether this change that happened in 2003 was linked to any alterations in patterns of smoking so what what was your take Carl on those things well my take on these things is when you go and read the 1954 paper you can get to the point of what's going on what you're describing there sounds like some language that actually is from a different world quasi-experimental what's going on and look at the data and I think what it means look they throw that in the bin as I read this paper it basically is a before and after and actually quasi-experimental is a made up word in my mind and the Um, other so the other word they use a lot is interrupted time series before and after quasi-experimental means it's not Mm randomised and interrupted time series says in 2003 we looked before and we looked after and what they showed is there was actually no difference between the in- interaction. And what happened is in certain countries, the framework came in at different time points. So the interrupted bit is you've got to interrupt the before and after at different time points, depending on when they adopted the framework. But I think this is the language that doesn't help us when we start to read these papers. And I think the message is lost a bit in this paper because it's really important in there is to say, We've got this massive framework, and before it was in, brought into place and after, it didn't make much difference. So actually, we should have gone back to the evidence and said, what does work in terms of smoking cessation? Let's make sure as a policy we keep doing that. And I think there's a lot of people attach themselves in a policy world to say, we seem to be doing something, and then switch off. And what these papers really show is we can't afford to switch off. And I think in some areas in the country, there really needs to be a concerted effort to improve smoking cessation to get these numbers down. Mm. So that's your start, Duncan. Start. Start. Well, start smoking cessation. (laughs) Stop smoking. smoking. In fact, that's start and stop in one go. It's confusing me now. There's so much to start, stop, stop or what to do. It's a quasi start stopping. (laughs) Start cessating. Start stopping. Helen, I'm going to start this by asking you, last time you saw a patient to examine them, were you wearing gloves? Mm, I think that's a tricky question to answer, but I know where you're asking me. <laughs> just, a, <laughs> because, just an obvious segue into the next bit. <laughs> because um, there was a 60-second piece in uh, BMJ recently about a campaign which was started by a group of nurses at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London to, um, I suppose, ask people to revise the way that they use gloves in clinical care. Um, Particularly non-sterile gloves, wasn't it? Particularly non-sterile gloves, yes. Um, And it was quite a brief piece, but um, nurses are interested in this, and I think it's as relevant to, well, really any healthcare um, practitioner. Um, And they cite some evidence, like a a large um, uh, guideline piece, really, I guess, that was done uh, back in 2014. Um, And have you seen this evidence, Carl? Well, the first thing is to say, I I actually read this, and and it's one of them um, where I did get to the end of the article because I was just, like, blown away by the sort of thought processes here. Um, 
Great Ormond Street Hospital ordered 3.7 million fewer non-sterile gloves in the year after the campaign launched, compared with the year before. That's an interrupted time theory. It's a quasi-experimental mm-hmm. design. It's all of them fever. Saving over £90,000 and avoiding the use of 18 tonnes of plastic. So I think it's really interesting. What precipitated this was, was the sort of plastic issue. Mm. which has become a big issue globally, which makes complete sense. But actually, when you look at it, you think, but actually, you just saved £90,000. And I thought that was amazing. And so, it, and, and what they've done, and now they're taking it nationally, so it'd be great to get them on and get this national presence. And I do use non-sterile gloves, and I use them uh, when I'm doing my out-of-hours sometimes. And it did make me think, because what the evidence shows is the problem with non-sterile gloves, particularly in hospitals, is when people have been observed, one is they tend to keep them on sometimes mm. because actually the evidence is when you use them in patient contact, you've got to take them off and still wash your hands. Because the problem is... Because they don't is, avoid the need to wash your hands. No, that's the thing. Because about, and, and what they've shown is on the gloves and when you take them off, you still about... 30% of people. It hospital. makes you wonder if you had to do those inductions where you had to put your hands, you have to wash your hands yeah. in a special soap and then you put it in like a light yeah. box and it shows you where the dirt is. But it makes you wonder if you did that with gloves on. Well, what they're showing. Removing your gloves to see, to see where um, the dirty parts are. Yeah, well, what they show is at least 30% of people with gloves when they take them off still have bacteria from the patient on their hands and that's why you keep need, need to wash so the problem is you can be a real transmitter of healthcare associated infections if you're not thinking that actually the gloves are not an appropriate barrier and so once you start to understand that it's the hand washing and the use and sterilizing your hands that way that's the important feature and if we could reduce the number of gloves we save all the plastic but we start to save money and they brought up this other issue, which I think was quite interesting and did have some evidence around that, about the barrier, the kind of physical barrier that having gloves on your hands introduces between you and the patient. And that to some extent, I mean, there are obvious examinations which you would always put your gloves on for, but that maybe if you're taking someone's temperature or using your stethoscope to, to, to listen in to them, um, there's a relationship uh, building quality of uh, examining someone and sort of laying your hands on in inverted commas the patient to do the examination and that feeling like a validating part of the consultation which I think was another interesting aspect. So yeah that's really interesting so the bits where you do wear gloves invasive procedure sterile sites non-intact skin mucous membranes and exposure to blood so if you remember them five Mm. things that's where you use them but this idea you just put on gloves because you're just going to touch the patient Mm. is actually is a misnomer and actually, I totally agree with what you're saying. But I think, you know, you transfer this across a number of hospitals. It's such a, a great value opportunity. And it's an environmental improvement. So to me, it's a no-brainer. And it's something we should stop doing. But actually, we, again, it's a stop-start. We should promote the campaign. And their campaign's motto is no risk, no glove. Great. So stopping and starting. And as predicted, there's a siren in the background. Right, Helen, now over to you. It's finally time to talk transparency. We've literally just published this research looking at the transparency of drug companies, or at least what their policies say about their transparency. Tell us about that. Well, I thought it might be worth uh, pausing before we start 
just to um, refresh our memories as to why uh, what transparency is and why it is important. Um, so the element, the key elements of um, transparency, particularly in research, are around registration of your study, um, sharing of your results and your data, um, and then dealing with individual patient data and identifiable data. And the reason why this is important and why transparency is helpful is that you want to try and prevent misreporting. You want information to be available to people um, and to lead to better and easier replication and different analyses of results. So something that caught my eye um, was this consultation which has been launched by the Health Research Authority, um, the HRA. And I wanted to talk to you about this, Carl, because I know that this is an issue which is very close to your heart. And perhaps before we glean your thoughts, um, because I can see you're itching to share them, we should just listen <laughs> to um, a little clip that I recorded earlier with Andrew George from the HRA. Hello, uh, I'm Andrew George. Um, I'm the non-executive director of the Health Research Authority uh, and I'm also leading on the research transparency strategy that they are currently developing. Andrew, can you tell us first just a little bit about the Health Research Authority or HRA and who it is and what it does? Sure. So the Health Research Authority um, is the body that oversees uh, a lot of the governance of clinical research or all actually research involving humans uh, in this country. And what powers do you have to um, enforce, I suppose, these the standards on people? Where we have our greatest influence and where we have probably our greatest way of making things happening uh, is through the network of research ethics committees. Mm -hmm. uh, and so all research that happens in this country has to be reviewed by a research ethics committee. All research involves human subjects has to be involved by a research ethics committee. Uh, and so actually by influencing the research ethics committees and making sure that they understand what they're doing uh, and that they uh, give sound opinions, that way we can influence what the researchers are doing. And we've called you in today because we read about this um, initiative that's recently been launched around research transparency. Can you tell us a bit about it? Certainly, and we've named this initiative Make It Transparent, which I think really says it all. One of the planks is around uh, registration of research, making sure that all studies are properly registered. Another is around the publication or making sure that the findings of the research are disseminated. Um, another one uh, is around making sure that we can share data and tissues. Uh, and the final one uh, is to try and ensure that research participants are informed about the general outcomes of the research that they've participated in. And we know that that 30% um, of clinical trials, roughly speaking, aren't registered, um, that um, available number maybe only 60 to 80, 60 to 70% of studies, probably uh, CTIMP studies, publish on time and publish their results on time. Um, and I think that there are reasons for that. And some of those reasons, frankly, are good reasons. Uh, you know, it is difficult sometimes to... Um, it's difficult sometimes to get things done. Uh, it is also true that sometimes people don't fully realise what they should be doing um, and that uh, we need to make it clearer what they should be doing and how they can do it. And sometimes it is, frankly, poor reasons. It's not high enough on people's radar. Um, and so I think that there are several reasons. But I think, you know... Actually, it's a journey. As I said before, it's a journey where we have improved things. Uh, 
we being the research community have improved things we just need to take the next step and take it to the next level so this consultation is about how how those things are it's achieved. about yes so this consultation is well there's several elements of the consultation one of the elements of the consultation is how do we achieve this including should there be sanctions for people who don't yeah. do things or shouldn't there be sanctions um, there are some aspects of the consultation which is around the scope and so we are consulting for example we are proposing that we initially only cover clinical uh, research studies but the ambition is absolutely clear we should get 100% of the studies in the scope registered all studies should be able to publish should have published their results uh, their findings i suppose one other thing that occurs to me is ultimately whose responsibility is it to ensure that these things are done like there are um organizations such as yours that might may have some input but who who really does this belong to so you you're right you picked you you put your finger uh, helen on a really nubbly issue and the nubbly issue is that actually this is a shared responsibility that if you take an individual research project well there's the funder of the research there's the organization that is uh, probably sponsoring the research and also employing the main researchers then um, there may be several of those of course uh, there are there's a health research authority there is mhra uh, and then there is also the professional bodies and then there's also the publishers coming down the line this is a shared responsibility um, and what we've got to do is is as the health research authority what we want to do is play a leadership role uh, in this uh, to pull together as many of these bodies as possible so that we can all work to make it transparent we can all work to make uh, this this agenda happen I mean, I've personally been approached by international organisations that have wanted to contribute to it, and we welcome that one because we can always learn from our, uh, from anyone, uh, people from overseas and their own experiences. Um, to be clear, this is obviously just a strategy for the UK. It's a strategy for the whole of the UK. We've got the devolved administrations are involved in uh, preparing this strategy, but it's only for the UK. And how can people get involved? Well, thanks, Helen. There's, uh, I hope a lot of people get involved. Several ways you can get involved. First of all, we do have a consultation online on the Health Research Authority website. Um, but also, you could attend one of the consultation workshops. Um, they're being held in London, uh, in, in Manchester, um, also Cardiff, uh, Belfast and in Edinburgh. So all over the country. Uh, get involved in those. Uh, but write in, tell us what you think. So uh, I'm going to question where everybody thinks this is what we should be doing because uh, I don't think that is the case because the message hasn't hit home. But first to say this this is, is an initiative that I support, but it's interesting. The HRA results, he said, well, it's outrageous that 80% of trials are registered and only seven, and 75% are published on time. And I'm like, where's it getting them figures from? Because one of the things is in Oxford, Ben Goldacre leads a team and I supervise a DPL student, Nick DeVito, who runs a service called eutrialstracker.net, which is a live updating of all the clinical trials on the European Union Clinical Trials Register. And it's the law that you must report your results within one year of completion. And at the moment, trial sponsors have reported 60.2% of 5,952 trials that have reported. 
So actually, it's far worse than they're saying. And what's interesting here, let me finish, because now you said it's close to my heart and I'm getting excited, is that actually, <laughs> when you look and you can order it, you can do this yourself, you can go online, you can play around with the data, you can look, but if you order it by the percentage who've reported 100%, all of them are industry stu- industries, studies. And then below that, it tends to be public sector, universities, and some of them are dire. So across the public sector, we haven't got this message. And there are ones down here when you go down, you'll get right down to 0%, of which there's more than 15 that have got 0% of their studies reported So you're one a year. researcher, and you're saying this is the law. So what fear would you have of retribution if, if you didn't... Uh, if you didn't comply with these Well, look, this is the law standards. in the US. for you, It's been the law in the US for drugs that have been approved in the US should have reported within one year of completion, and it's been since about 2007, and they've expanded it. And you get fined $10,000 a day for every day you're over, over the, sh- the, the sort of date of one year. Nobody's ever been fined yet. And in the UK? Yeah. No, in, in the US, sorry. In the US, yeah. okay. So it's not clear, and this has just come into force in, in Europe, so it's not clear what anybody's going to do uh, with, with these organisations, trial sponsors, units that sponsor the trial, so they're overarching, have responsibility, so they should ensure they're compliant with European law if they're on the EU trials register, which is what you do within Europe at the moment. Therefore, this HRA is basically setting out the, si- the situation is much worse, and in many institutions, it's dire. They're setting out a public consultation, really for us to say, is this important, and what should we do about it? To me, there are some fixes that are quite straightforward that we need to consider, but actually I would in- uh, ask people to go on to this consultation and put forward your views of whether this is important and what we should do about it. And we've got to get the programme out soon because actually the consultation is only 12 weeks and it's already started. And so linked to that, then there was this uh, study just out in the BMJ that was examining um, transparency sort of in a different way. So looking to develop a tool that would assess the transparency of um, clinical uh, research particularly coming from commercial organisations like the pharma industry, and to, and to pilot this on a number of drugs. Um, and I thought that this, this maybe was, was quite interesting, particularly the development of some, I suppose, tool or mechanism by which you might be able to rank people, rank either companies or rank um, academic institutions or measure to some extent um, their compliance with these five features. What what did you make of this? Uh, well, piece? I, uh, I'm not a fan of it, unfortunately. You're I not. thought I, I did like what they were trying to do, yeah. but as I read it, it got a bit complicated for me. Mm. And everybody knows I'm a GP, and I mm-hmm. like to keep we it like simple. I like to keep it so simple. So they kept it to five features. Like those are quite simple, aren't they? So the the five features that they said um, people needed to report were sorry. The five features were um, that the trials had to be registered so that people can find them. Okay, registered. Um, there's access to analysis-ready data sets, by which they mean the clinical study reports or, or pretty detailed information. Did they say how that access should be? See, that's um, the wrong way around. The second thing... Oh, hold want... on, I haven't even got to number three, four, or five. Well, let me give you let number two. Number two should have been summary results. Go on, carry on. Number three. 
Sorry. Explains how the data can be requested. Number four, reports annually the number of data requests received and the outcome of each request. And number five, specifies um, data will be made available by a particular deadline. Right. So, so, so what's wrong with those? So look, it's it, it, it sort of slightly the wrong way around. The first thing you want to say is, do you register your trials? Number two is, do you publish your summary results within the remit of the law? So they're the first two things, and they're not a score, they're all or nothing. And if you don't do that, it doesn't matter what goes on because you're not doing the basics. And then beyond that, you've got the more complicated things. Do you make clinical study reports and individual patient data available? And if you do so, how do you do that on how do you do with that? And I think them are slightly separate because I think if you do that for everything, you don't you don't need that for all drugs and everything. But we do need the first bits, the registration. So you think maybe on. there's layers to this. There's we layers. To, we need to start with something simpler and yeah. more fundamental. Yeah. Now, what this mean, means to me and reminds me is, I've spoke to Ben Goldacre on this point, and you should ring him up and say we should have produced a very simple template that actually says here's a policy that you could adopt and stick on your website and say, we stick to it. And it's probably about three or 400 words. It will have some of them bits in, but actually there's a sort of layer. If you don't meet the first two requirements, you can't then come under and say, well, okay, we make CSRs available and it's really difficult. So that makes us slightly better. If you don't register your trials, number one is you shouldn't be allowed to carry on. So when you think about the HRA consultation is, the first thing is if you've done trials, and you haven't registered them, you should never get an ethical approval for another one, period. And you have to fix that. The second thing is, if you haven't published the results already of a trial you've done, why should your institution then get sponsorship and ethical approval to do another? You should have to fix that. So every ethical approval should be tied to checking, have you registered and reported your summary results in full within the law. So this relates to something which I view as much more simple, which I use with my children, which is that you don't give the treats out until the behaviour is demonstrated. Okay, so that's fair enough. Ethical yeah. approval <laughs> as a treat. I have to be careful what I say because I was listening to Piers Morgan the other day about the naughty step and that was all sorts of problems with even using that approach. But, it, but you can see then first two steps could be and should be fixed. There are institutions who do hundreds of trials and have a significant number that have not published their summary results yet. It's an ethical and moral imperative to make the results of research available in a timely fashion. You do research in trials on people who are uh, potentially in vulnerable, unwell, and there's real uncertainty about what the answer is in terms of effectiveness of benefits and harms. So when you understand that, how can you then sit back and say, oh, well, we're not going to post the results and we're not going to make them available? And this is really a problem for research and it's a problem then for people who do systematic reviews down the line who are going, well, the results are not available, so we can't update our reviews. And so the whole pipeline of research slows down. So uh, this is a problem, and I think it's a, a, an issue that we can address across all of universities and all sponsors in the UK that we fully adopt a, pro a process. And if you don't meet it, you shouldn't be able to do the research. Simple as that. But I, I'm going to tell you the story that I'm almost going close think, to my heart. I think heart. we're going to segue into Carl's rant. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going right. into a rant. Um, the late D Doug Altman, the last time I met him was in a pub. I particularly like pubs in Oxford, about four or five weeks before he died. And the exact talk we had was about how we were going to address this. And he wanted to write a letter to the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford and set out a principle that said we need to adopt 
a strategy that teaches every student about this issue. And I think it is a, a really important issue that actually uh, the legacy of Doug Altman is simple things like registering trials and reporting them in full. But you have to have a training and education component to it. And you have to have an audit and feedback that says we're continually looking at this problem to solve it. But taken together, if it's fixed, it will start to have an impact downstream on our ability to understand what's happening with evidence. I think you should just quickly say who Doug Altman was. Yeah, Doug, Doug was, for many people in the EBM world, uh, will need no introduction, but he was a statistician, a medical statistician, who ran the Centre for Statistics in Medicine in Oxford, and he was a colleague of people like Ian Chalmers and David Sackett, and did amazing work, starting with... Uh, most people in epidemiology will understand Bland and Altman plots. plots uh, did amazing series of work in the BMJ on explaining statistics. And basically, about 25 years ago, set out a lot of the thinking in an editorial about what's the problem with poor quality research. We need uh, less research, but more better research. And he set out a principle and then did things like consort and reporting guidelines and made an amazing contribution to... Uh, the thinking in evidence-based medicine. And just to say, this year at uh, EBM Live, we have the Doug Altman Scholarships inaugural, and we've got amazing candidates coming forward, and we keep posting all sorts of interesting blogs from them because they've got a lot to say, and I think we need a new generation who think differently about improving the quality of research, and you need to sometimes step outside of just the doing of research the sort of stress or ref and, and publishing and step back and think actually if you can improve how research is done you're likely to make a more important contribution to evidence and how it's used in practice than if you just carry on doing more trials in the way we do them now. Bit of a rant there from me, I was going to start getting carried away. <laughs> <laughs>talk evidence this month as Carl just said we're going to be at evidence live that's the conference at the BMJ and CEBM run on all thing evidence so prepare your inner EBM nerd for a whole lot of content coming up and a very excited Carl and a very excited Carl <laughs> so until then if you want to get in touch with us like Steve Lotion did then have a look at bmj.com slash podcast there you can find out how to do it if you've got a point to make, then record it on your smartphone and send it in. Just to emphasize, we really want to hear from you. If you've got all the way to the end of this podcast, you're obviously a glutton for punishment. So if you've not subscribed, you really should. You'll get your next episode right to your phone. Until then, it's bye from me. Bye from me. And me. Bye. Bye.